This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the library. I'm Troy Swanson, one of the librarians. Uh, today's event is Women in Islam. This is part of our uh, Malcolm X series of events. One of the themes that we wanted to discuss around the book Malcolm X was Islam in general. So this isn't a discussion about Malcolm X per se, but the broader topic that's brought up in the book and then um, kind of uh, adapted to uh, our life here. So this is good. Um, I want to just do a quick introduction of our members and then um, we'll start out. So um, I want to welcome uh, Huda Krad, who's down at the end. She's an a instructor um, in her past life, maybe, or maybe a future life again. At uh, She's taught English at St. Xavier's, Oakton Community College, and Loyola University, and is currently a law student at Loyola. So, um, you know, good luck with law. Thank you. Um, on this end, I want to welcome uh, Ida Del Shalaby, who's been with us before for a couple events. It's always great to have her here. Uh, she's a co-founder and executive director of Arab American Family Services. And in the center, last but not least, is our moderator, Krista Applequist, who teaches uh, communications, among other things. So uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Krista, and we'll begin. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Actually, we'd like to start with this panel is on women in Islam, specifically Muslim women in this community here, and we're going to be talking about a variety of things, even a bigger variety, depending on what questions, comments, or things you bring up as the audience toward the end. So I think we'd like to begin with a particular story. Assalamu alaikum, marhaba. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Troy, for always thinking of me and inviting me to these presentations. Um, women, in Isl- uh, women in Islam. I look at women in Islam, um, 9-11 happened. We all know it happened. And it affected us and put us in the forefront more so than ever before. And one of the stories that Krista's talking about, and we were talking a little while ago, is about, um, I was, uh, after 9-11, about a month or two later, I was downtown for a meeting, and I was walking from my car to the building to get in for my appointment, and an older lady walked up to me and said, Honey, sweetheart, you're an American now. You're free. Take that thing off. You don't need to have it on. And a lot of it is they assume that this is something that's forced. This is something that needs to be liberated. And I, my response was, I'm more liberated wearing it than I am not wearing it. So I am proud to have it on, and this is who I am as a Muslim woman. And it's not uh, an oppression or a subservience, as a lot assume, or the stereotypes, but this is something part of me that I've accepted, that Allah has asked me to wear it, and I've accepted it. Which basically shows that if women in this country, in free America, are wearing a scarf, then it's a choice, right? So we've got a lot of girls sitting right around us who have it on their heads, and yet they could take it off. So why are they still wearing it if they're not in the Middle East anymore, right? So it just gives us a clear example that maybe they're wearing it not because they have to, but because they want to. Now, of course, we can't paint all Muslim American women with the same brush. So before we get into this panel too deeply, I would like both of you to tell the audience, who are you and how did you come to be here today? Okay. I am an immigrant, as my children still tell me often. Mom, you are an immigrant. You don't understand. Um, I came here when I was nine years old, and I didn't speak a word of English. And I give a lot of my thanks to the teachers, especially our ESL teachers who took us under their wing and said, you're going to have a lot of obstacles in your life. Let me at least give you one tool that you can, you know, fight back with. And the language and the communication is key in any way of communicating. Um, and so for me, 
I love, uh, you know, I love who I am as a Muslim woman, and I love what it has brought t- into my life. But as I said, we immigrated here in 1973. Um, I went to high school, uh, school here. I went to a Catholic high school, and I will honestly say, Catholic high school is what really brought me to understand Islam a lot more, because I was challenged and I was asked a lot of questions. As a lot of questions are going to come up from the audience and from uh, the presenter, uh, the moderator. It's who am I? You know, wh- why are you wearing this? Why do you pray? Why do you fast? Why do you do this? So it brought me to really think and understand who I am as a Muslim woman growing up in a non-Muslim co- uh, community. And so it was really interesting for me to accept Islam, and it really empowered me as a Muslim woman. Um, I am a mother of three children, and my oldest is going to Loyola. I co-founded in, ni- in 2001. I co-founded Arab American Family Services, and I have my master's in social work. Thank you. Okay. Um, again, as, the, as I was introduced, my name is Huda, and I was born and raised here. Um, and Palos Heights actually was my hometown. And I spent my um, years in school between public school, and I went to a college prep school, and then I spent one year at Universal School, and a lot of you guys know that place. Mm-hmm. And um, after um, finishing high school, I went to college, and I majored in English, And when I finished uh, college, I got a master's in English, and then I was a college professor for about four years. I first taught at a community college, so you guys were pretty much my students. Um, It was a blast, and then I taught at St. Xavier University, and finally I taught at Loyola University before deciding that I wanted to go to law school. So that's where I am right now. I recently um, participated in a competition, and I I wish you guys all the same, some kind of crazy wonderful adventure in your educational careers, but I participated in a moot court competition and we competed nationally and out of uh, 94 um, law schools I was the one female that wore a scarf on her head and I won the best oralist um, award and I was the best oralist in the country. So going to show that yeah, we're Muslim women, but we're all different, Mm -hmm. right? And so hopefully we'll get that message conveyed at some point today. Oh, and congratulations Thank on that. You. you didn't tell me that before. <laughs> I teach speech and argumentation. Oh, okay. Anyway. Maybe we should have a debate now. <laughs> no way, not with you. Okay. All right, I'm going to ask the panelists a very broad question, and I'm going to let them answer it in any way they want, whether it's with stories or just with facts or just with clarifying what they think this audience would want to hear. Then I have some follow-up questions involving challenges and stereotypes and some clarifications that I think Americans um, who don't understand, uh, Americans, um, Christian Americans or Americans who are not Muslim might not understand some things. And then, of course, I'll open up the floor to the audience to ask questions and make specific comments. So here's my general question, and I will turn it to you first and then her, and it is, what is the, what role do Muslim women play in this community? I think a, a Muslim woman role is the same as any woman out there role can be. She can choose to be whatever she wants to be, as in an Islam, and I don't want to take what Huda had said, because I felt very much in the, in the, in the room back that she wanted to talk about the women's rights, so I'm going to let her say it first. Go for it. Okay. You sure? Mm-hmm. You can go ahead and talk about whatever All you want right. to Okay. Um, as, as Muslim women, I know I have a right to an education. I have a right to an inheritance. I have a right to initiate a divorce. I have a right to initiate a marriage. I have a right to work, and my money stays with me. So as a Muslim woman, the more we know of our rights, the more we are empowered to know that these are given rights by Allah, not man-made. The more I see that women's role can be extensive in this community, specifically as we stand out. We stand out with our hijab. We stand out as Muslim women that, you know, as you walk in, as doctors, as teachers, as professors, 
as social workers, as uh, nurses, there any role you choose, you are you are part of it, and you can make that work. This gets lost after a while. I forget I have it on. I don't even see it. I don't even feel it. It's just the look on someone's face as I'm walking, what right, snaps me back sometimes into reality. So for me, I look at a woman's role as anything she sets her mind to be. As long as she understands what she wants and what she wants to take from it, there is no stop in her. And it's more and more important for us as Muslim women to lead those roles and, and to take the initiative and not to say, oh, I can only be a teacher. Look at Huda. She's, a, she's going for a law degree. Look at other engineers. We've had major women in engineers, major women in, in the field of medicine. So women can play any role they choose to as long as you make that choice for yourself. Hoda, would you like to speak to this? Sure. Um, the, the question um, in the title that of this event that a lot of you guys saw was uh, what um, role do the Muslim women play in this community? So, I mean, if you think about it, a lot of you guys often see uh, Muslim women, and we pretty much look similar. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Okay, we, we pretty much stand on the same boat, right? But when I just think of my friends that are pretty much like me, mid to late 20s, early 30s, and a lot of you guys, just think of your friends, okay, for those of you that have Muslim women as friends. Let me tell you what roles I came up with. I've got a college guidance counselor, a pharmacist, a college professor, a manager at Target, a nurse, a fifth grade teacher, a radiologist, a pediatrician, a dentist, Aesthetician, so hard for me to say that one. <laughs> a makeup uh, working. Oh, I have a friend that works at the makeup counter at Carson Perry Scott. Uh, a florist, a photographer, and of course, the many of my friends have the full time job as a mother. Okay, so Muslim women they play roles in our community, and they're all different. Um, but the one thing they share in common is that they do have one, and it's a good one. And so it's often nice to think about that we, we've got something on the surface that looks similar, but we're all different. We play different roles, and it's a lot like all the rest of our neighbors. And if I may add, if a woman chooses to be a homemaker, there is no money to be even set aside to pay her for what she has to give back to her family, to her children, to the society at large. So no role a woman takes on is less or better than the other. It's the, it's the fact that you like what you do. You like the choice that you make. And this is exactly what a Muslim woman has that right, is to choose. And if she chooses to be a homemaker, that's wonderful. If she chooses to be an astronaut, that is excellent. The whole thing issue is for you as a woman to understand, but even more so for us as Muslim women to define who we are and to be who, what we want to be. Well, thank you both. All right, my next question. What challenges, such as perhaps stereotypes, do you face as a Muslim woman in America? Actually, yeah, we'll start with Hoda. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, I mean, as, as many of you have, have experienced yourselves, um, it doesn't matter what, where you come from or what religion you are. A lot of people face challenges in this country growing up or even, you know, as we sit here as adults. But um, some of the, the personal challenges, um, they change with age. You know, you face certain challenges when you're 14 that you look back at when you're 18. You go, oh, my God, I was so immature. And then you face certain challenges, you know, when you start a job. And then you face different, completely different challenges when you take a class as opposed to different challenges when you're going to make a huge commitment in life, like, you know, entering into a relationship, etc. But um, the one story I can think of that really stands out of all my challenges that I'm sure many of you share is I used to work at Barnes & Noble in Orland Park. I was a bookseller there for like three years. And um, I basically worked at the information desk, so if you wanted to find a book, you asked me. So one day I was standing at the information desk, and um, a mother with her, like, 
four-year-old daughter with, had a lot of books she needed down, to take downstairs to the first floor. And um, Sandy, who's my coworker, um, had a back problem, so I, and she was her customer. I said, oh, Sandy, don't worry about it. I'll carry the books for her downstairs. And so um, we went on the elevator. I took all, I had all these books in my hands, and the, the woman had her daughter next to her. And in front of her daughter, she turned to me and said, can I ask you a question? And that's where I knew something was coming. And I said, sure. You know. By the way, just a side note. We love questions. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. So when you say, can I ask you a question? I was so scared. I didn't know if I was going to offend you. Don't worry. You're not going to offend us. Okay? Questions are wonderful. But, you know, I, but I knew something was coming. I don't know why. But she said, do you have to marry a Muslim man? Okay, at the time I was single. Um, right now I am married, and my husband is not Middle Eastern. He is half Mexican, quarter Russian, and quarter German. Um, his mother is Catholic, and his father is Jewish. And we are both Muslim. Um, and basically, uh, she asked me at the time, she said, do you have to marry a Muslim man? And I said, well, it's kind of like if you ask me a question of do I want to marry, for example, an educated man, a person who's open-minded, a person who's fun and likes to go rollerblading on the weekends. I mean, my personal, uh, the personal qualities I want in a man, yeah, I mean, it's a big part of my life, you know, so I want him to pray with me and I want him to worship with me and I want him to have the same personal goals. So I would say, yeah, I would want to marry a Muslim man. And she said, well, and we still didn't reach the first floor. She said, well, I've got something to tell you. Did you know, and I said, here it comes, did you know that if you married a Muslim man, he can kill you when he's done with you? And I looked at her and I said, you know, I did not know that. So this was a woman who I will say had the good intention that she saw a vulnerable, poor little girl who needed to be protected you know, because, of course, she didn't know me, right? She just knew this. She needed to be protected from something that might hurt her. And her intention was what I'm going to assume was a pure one, that she wanted to protect me from something that was bound to happen, that was inevitable, that I wasn't aware of, but it was going to happen to me because I was going to get myself into that trap. And I told her, you know what, that's actually not true. And at this point, we're walking to the cash register, so people are listening. I said, it's actually not true. Um, That's a misconception. Killing is murder, and, you know, you go to jail for that, and, you know, you're not supposed to do that. And she said, no, 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 my husband told me, you know. And I said, well, I'm not sure where he got his information from. And she said, well, he read it in a book. And I said, you know, I do work in a bookstore, and don't tell my manager I said this, but not everything you read is true. You know, and she said, well, no, he actually knew a Muslim man, and the Muslim man told him that he can kill his wife. And I said, he said this in America? Here? No. Um, that was my most interesting story. And basically, the, me- the message was to me was that a lot of people don't know and have huge misconceptions of what our religion is and what our role is as women. And she wanted to save me. Okay, um, I'm, I'm happily married, you know. Um, I don't think that would ever happen to me, and uh, um, it's absolutely, absolutely, positively not a part of our religion, but I'm sure we'll address those difficult questions later. But I have to say that, you know, a lot of us face that kind of stuff. It's basically that kind of stuff. Before I ask Itadel to respond, I just want to ask you to reiterate, what are a married woman's rights, a Muslim Mm -hmm. woman who's married, what are her rights? Oh, gosh, where to begin? Um, Before it even starts, okay, before you even get married, A woman has a right to choose her husband. It is a sin in our religion, a sin, 
Okay, not a choice, not it's okay. It is a sin to force any of your children, male or female. Sometimes the guys are forgotten, and guys, I'm totally representing you right now. <laughs> We're always talking about the girls. It is a sin for a parent in our religion to force their children to get married. There was a woman who went to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and told him, my father forced me to marry this man. He didn't give me a choice. And the Prophet told her, well, I'm giving you a choice right now. You can choose. Do you want to stay with him? Or you want it to be over, it's your choice. So that marriage, had she not wanted to be in it, would have been annulled and she would not have to be with that man. Okay, which basically flat out says, you cannot force your children to marry. But her answer was, her answer was, well, actually I do want to be with my husband. However, I just wanted to make this point. So all the women that come after me that are forced into marriages they don't want to be in, that it's stated outright that that is wrong and it's not part of our religion. And so... That's one of the rights. Another one of the rights is, ladies, you know, you are, have a right to basically put in um, uh, requests in your contract. You can set basically what the standards are going to be. You're not forced into a relationship that you don't want to set the terms for. You have a right to divorce in our religion from 1,400 years ago. This is a not a new phenomenon. Okay, you have a right to your property. You do not marry into a relationship and your husband owns everything you own. And I'm not sure if many of you know this, but do you know why Muslim women don't change their name when they get married? Okay, we don't change our names when we get married. But we do now in this country because that's pretty much the culture. But that, I, that notion of changing your name um, that came from a long time ago, it's basically because a woman used to be considered a man's property when she married him, and so she took his name. And so in our custom, we don't change our name because you are still your own person. You, your property belongs to you. Your money is yours when you work, and yes, you can work. Uh, every, every dollar you have is your own money, and if you choose to spend it into your, in your family or on your, your husband or on your home, it's considered charity, so you get bonus points. Okay, mm -hmm. so um, basically you've got, and there's a lot more, but I'm not going to take the floor forever, so no. that's good for now. We can have, talk later about that. Itadel, would you like to speak to this and maybe answer, um, after you respond, maybe answer the question that people might have is, well then, where did we get this stereotype that Muslim women are so oppressed and have to be so subservient to their husbands? As Huda had explained, I think you guys got a great picture of what Huda had said and a lot of our women's rights. So I'll jump. I mean, for me, the biggest stereotype is a lot of the issues with when I do presentations. I do a lot of cultural presentations and under making uh, mainstream American community understand Islam 101 and Arab 101, whether it's the police departments, whether it's the hospitals, whether it's the schools, whether it's the colleges. So I do a lot of presentations, and a lot of it is they do believe that we are subservient. We don't have a choice. We have to walk behind our husbands. We have to... Uh, ask permission to do this or that and it's like trying to uh, counteract that is what we're trying to educate them as Huda described Islam is a peaceful religion Islam if you understand Islam Islam comes from the root word of Salm and Salam which means submitting yourself peacefully to the will of Allah asking you to dress like this asking you to be uh, if it's needed to be to be there for your family but not taking away the rights that you have so for me it's a lot of counteracting the subserviency and that and that the men have it's a patriarchal and Islam can you know condones that uh, abuse towards women but for the the question was how where did that come from? And we were discussing that when Islam started, it gave women a lot of rights. In fact, it stopped infanticide. Pre-Islam, when a man had a daughter, they used to bury her alive. 
And Islam came in and put a stop to that. So a lot of it, I look back at history, and it's when colonialism, when the 22 Arab countries that were impacted by colonialism came and changed that patriarchy society, that infused that patriarchy, that men are better, men are the superior, men are the dominator. And we forgot our Islamic roots. And if look at the younger generation that are going back to Islam and back to what it really means and the beauty of what Islam brings. So a lot of it, I look at it as the colonization of the 22 Arab countries for over 40, 50 years. Thank you, Tadel and Hoda. All right, I'm going to bring up a topic that half this audience, I can tell, doesn't need this question answered, um, but they might be interested in the perspective, and about half the audience might have this question. Why do you wear the hijab or the scarf? And why don't men have to practice hijab? Um, the... <laughs> The the first <laughs> the first misconception. Well, let me first say what <laughs> is do. what is hijab? Yeah. Is uh, let me let me see. Let me take a show of hands. How many of you think hijab is the scarf on my head? Trick question, guys. Hint hint. Okay, close. I'll just say that. Okay, hijab is the idea of covering modestly, not just your head. Okay, so let's say I'm wearing, you know, not what I'm wearing. My long sleeve you know, a uh, shirt and my long pants and all I have is my scarf on. Is that hijab? No. Okay. So hijab is the practice of covering everything except your face and hands and in some conditions, of course, wearing sandals, your feet. Okay. So basically the fact that I'm wearing a long sleeve, that's hijab too. Okay. But um, the the word scarf, we often use that in English because that's what we're, we have wrapped on top of our heads. It's a scarf. It's not a um, diaper? No, it's oh. not a diaper. And no, no, okay. it's not a towel. And no, okay. you do not have to wear it in the shower. I got that question when I was in yeah. fifth grade. Not when we're asleep. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't wear it when I'm asleep. I kind of usually think of it as like a jacket. You get home, you take it off with your jacket, you hang it up on the whatever. But um, basically, why do we why do we wear it? Um, it's I will. The easy answer is it's part of our religion. Um, the exact verse in the Quran is, "Oh, you believing men, lower your gaze and guard your modesty. Oh, you believing women." Lower your gaze and guard your modesty and draw your garments over. Because um, this is a funny fact, trivia, of um, the Middle East pre-Islam in, in Arabia. Women used to actually walk around topless. So you would have the garment that they would, that they would cover other parts of their body. It was asked to draw over their, their chest and over their head. So, but basically, you'll see Muslim women who care, who wear scarves in the Middle East, as opposed to in Pakistan, as opposed to in um, Bosnia, as opposed to in China, as opposed to in South um, America. They all wear it differently, right? Mm -hmm. But the basic notion, hijab, is cover. Okay, and God says in the Quran, cover your heads and cover yourselves, so that you may be known. I don't know if a lot of you guys know that. Not so that you may hide behind a curtain of veil and shame. Okay, so that you may be known. Um, a lot of you guys here in, in the United States know that if you're walking with your buddies, whether it's guys or girls, who's the one that gets asked the questions first? We do, okay, because we stand out. They know us. They see us. I have a guy friend who got married, and after he got married, his wife wears a scarf. And after he got married, he said, that's not fair. Everybody sees my wife, and they ask her the questions and give her the attention. So he grew a beard and wore a kufi because he wanted some attention. So um, it's part of our religion is the simple answer. Um, the the comp more complicated answer, which we'll hopefully we'll get into in later discussion, is um, basically it's for modesty and so that you are known for who you are, not what you look like, 
that your beauty or lack of it is not at issue when you're hired for a job, when you're taking a test, etc. That a woman is to be known for her ideas and who she is. And the length of her skirt or the tightness of her pants, etc., etc., what color her hair is, that's never at issue, okay? You are to be known. Cover so that you may be known. You, the individual, not your body, okay? It makes the notion of it being disempowering ironic in that the way mm-hmm. you, the way it actually mm-hmm. is is more empowering. Mm-hmm. Um, Itadel, would you like to speak to this? I think I also look at it as a religious statement, not as a political statement. Mm-hmm. And it can be viewed differently. If I'm talking in, a, in, a, in, an, in an audience, sometimes if there's controversy or other issues, they look at it as me putting my political views, and it really is, I go back to, this is an Islam. This is my, my religious duty. This is what I'm expected. This is what I submitted my, my will to Allah. And it's hard, ladies, and we understand it's hard. And for the men, you ask, do the men wear hijab? If you see them in Saudi Arabia, they are wearing the long flowing ropes. They are wearing um, a hatta or a kal on their head. So there is that modesty for men and women. It's, it's the way you project it to mainstream is, is the difference. So for, um, for me, it's really about a, a religious statement. And it does bring a lot of questions. It does... It doesn't, sometimes they're really stupid questions, but I think for our community members, don't look at it that way. Look at it as you're bringing da'wah, which is for us as Muslims is conveying the message of Allah, conveying the message of Islam. It's, it's a beautiful way of saying, well, look, you're in America now. Take that thing off. And for me to sit there and explain to this woman that I chose to put it on, it didn't make sense for her. She didn't understand it. She, but the point is she didn't want to understand it doesn't make me less of a woman or that you're not wearing it uh, you know, better than me. It makes me feel that I'm proud to be who I am and I'm proud to be in America as we're talking, being able to freely exercise our religious freedom. I mean, really look at it. It's a choice. Then we don't have to put it on in this country, but we do because it really inf- it re-empowers us as Muslim women and really gives us that avenue to ask, to, to have people come up and ask us questions, to give them that. And so for mainstream audience, please go up and ask. We don't mind the questions, but just give us time to explain. And sometimes that in itself can be a problem. A lot of others say, I am tired of explaining my religion. I'm tired of explaining who I am. It really puts us at, at, a, at an odd situation. Look at yourself. You're the only one who can be bringing something peaceful to the mainstream person, maybe giving them something that another Muslim will benefit from it by explaining. So don't look at it as an obstacle, but look at it as a gift from God that you were asked that question and that you can answer it. One thing I've observed as a teacher here, and this is a very diverse community, is not all Muslim women are wearing Mm -hmm. the scarf. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? I'll ask both of you, and I'll have Hoda speak to it first. Sure. Um, On behalf of all my sisters that don't wear it, okay, um, it is hard. It is Mm -hmm. not easy to wear a scarf in this country, okay, or in any country where Muslims are the minority. Um, It is so tempting even for us Muslims, don't act like you've never done this before, ladies, okay? It is so tempting to think that that's, that's all there is. Girl who wears scarf, girl who doesn't wear scarf. Mm-hmm. That's because that's on the surface. That's what you see. But it is so much more complicated than that. Um, you've got the difference between the girl that wore it because it was her tradition and her grandmother and grandmother and grandmother's grandmother and everybody before her wore it, and so why not wear it? Then you've got the girl whose grandmother never wore a scarf, mother never wore a scarf, and now that she's here in the United States and went to college and learned a little bit more about it, decided to wear a scarf. And then her mother told her, what are you doing? 
you are never going to get married. Mm-hmm. Who is going to want you with that thing on your head? I have a friend in college. That's what happened to her. And unfortunately, she took it off. Okay. Um, and then you've got the situations where we've got girls that don't wear it who say, that's not really part of the religion. And then you've got a girl who won't wear it that will say, that's part of the religion, but I'm not ready yet. Mm-hmm. It's so much more complicated than wearing it and not wearing it. And, and, and there's one thing, I mean, g- growing up here, the beauty of it is, is you've got friends that are so different. Even within your own community, everyone's different, okay? Even us on this panel, and everyone's so different. And in college, I remember seeing my friends who, and I had a friend, she was actually Irish-American. Her mother was a very strict Catholic and um, very nice woman, very nice woman. But she didn't understand what it was to be a Muslim. And was so worried about her daughter when her d- daughter decided to embrace Islam. And out of her worry for her daughter, because the way she found out was she found, found a scarf hidden behind her daughter's bed, which is not the way to find out. And she told her daughter, what are you doing? This is an oppressive religion. These are, these are people that are bad and mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. And, you know, it's a concern. And I say that because my husband Im- converted and his mother thought that somebody was brainwashing him. His father actually thought that he was going to go to Afghanistan and fight in the war. Um, I mean, these are real concerns because... I mean, we laugh now in retrospect, but everything looks clear in 2020 hindsight vision. But really, it's a worry. I mean, I know if I told my my parents I was going to be something else, they'd freak out, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So we understand from the parents' perspective that it's it's a it's something you get scared of. But basically, I had a friend, and she said, "I'm so annoyed because all I want to do is put the scarf on in this country, and I know girls who are Muslim, and they've got that opportunity, and their parents aren't going to throw them out of the house. They're not going to disown them." And they can wear it, and they don't. God. No, I think that's kind of like ironic how her mother <coughs> would oppose her wearing the scarf because the scarf, you know, the smodesty has worn off. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's absolutely. No. Mm-hmm. It it does, but what it represents. Right. If you go to, if you see like an Orthodox oh. Jewish woman, you go you go to Amdivan where they have some Orthodox mm-hmm. women. You see that their yes. hair is covered. Mm-hmm. So, so it's not so much as I don't think like for your friend. I don't think it's. Did the folks in the back hear the question? Would you do me a favor? Would you stand up and project or take the microphone? Okay. <laughs> we can repeat it. We can just repeat yeah, the, question. Ahead, the question. Basically, yeah. the, the point made was that it's ironic that the, the, the mom um, was so opposed to her daughter covering her head um, when it does have roots in her own religion. Mm-hmm. In theory, it's ironic. But religion nowadays isn't just comparing and contrasting general values and ideals. Right now, that's that's the whole point of us standing here. Is is when a woman at Barnes and Noble tells me your husband's going to kill you if you get married. That means it's not just comparing religions, right? It, there there are some ideas that are associated with us that are wearing the scarf, and ideas associated with us being Muslim. And those ideas are misconstrued from whatever reason. And so she's not really seeing her her daughter um, becoming more modest you know, human being who who's just wants to cover herself as in her religion. She's seeing her entering a religion that's scary to her. And it's scary because mm-hmm. the media has portrayed Islam as a terrorist religion, mm-hmm. as a fundamentalist religion, rather than if we really look at Islam and the roots of Islam is really peaceful and loving and merciful. And so the fear, and there's a great book called Daughters of Another Path, of mothers whose daughters have chosen Islam and they've written about it to express and they talk about that fear. They talk about that fear because as Nahuda said, it's the misunderstanding that you're not just accepting a religion and this is part of your faith. You're accepting this whole terroristic viewpoint and you're entering into a world that a lot of mainstream haven't 
understood but by media standards. And so it's unfortunate that that's where a lot of times you come back and you're trying to educate mainstream and to mis, you know, to take out and eradicate the misunderstanding and misinformation that is out there already. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask the panelists to please reiterate the question before you answer it so that everyone can hear it. And I'm going to have him ask his question and then we'll come back to you just to make sure everybody gets their voice. Go ahead, I've, sir. I've heard a lot of, I've, I don't know, I, I don't know when I heard this, but I heard someone maybe can substantiate this for me or, or reject it, but uh, I've heard that women, men can marry more than one wife in, in your system of belief. Sure, are you wanting to convert now because no, more of us <laughs> <laughs> His question was, can Muslim men marry more than one woman? Um, it is true, but Islam had guidelines of why a man can marry more than one woman. Uh, during the Islamic period, there was a lot of wars and a lot of things, and a lot of women were left without husbands or brothers or fathers. And the, so the stipulation is to take care of the widows and those who are left behind so that they can have someone, some male to take care of them. But Islam, as, as Huda was talking about, in your marriage contract, you can actually put he has no right to take a second wife. He has no right to do this. So there is a rule that says, and for certain requirements, sometimes men do take a second wife. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the time is that we want our young women here to understand that she can put that in the marriage contract, which he has by law, by Islam, to tell her, I'm going to take a second wife. So it, it, is, it, it is given to our men that they can marry more than one wife, but it is not something that is, uh, you know, permitted or, you know, required. They can only have one wife. They can only take care of one woman. Mm -hmm. I give him credit if he has two wives to take care of. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, to, and to add to that, I just wanted to say that I was hoping somebody or wondering with kind of fear if somebody was going to ask that question because it's always one that comes up mm -hmm. and it's the scariest one to answer. And you think it's actually easier for two women to answer the question than it is if you ask a man that question. He never knows what to say. But basically, um, to add on to, to what was said earlier, to understand the whole idea of, well, so what if there's widows? We've got widows here, right? They don't have to get married. We've got single women who got jobs, apartments, money, cars. They don't need to get married. You don't really need to get married anymore. But 1,400 years ago, just to give kind of a general notion of why, just a, just a brief, brief synopsis. You, as you who are Muslims in this room know that in our religion, and for those of you that don't know this, things are either allowed or not allowed. Okay? You can either, um, you're, you're forbidden from drinking alcohol, right? but you're allowed to have a turkey sandwich, right? You won't have, you know, pork, right, but you'll eat beef. Things are either permissible or not permissible. It's, like, listed. So you don't have general things that are just floating around. I wonder if I can do that. So with that said, at that time, 1,400 years ago, what happened was um, uh, in that period in Mecca, people would marry multiple spouses, both genders, what men and women would. So it was already a common practice. And it was a tribal society. So what that meant was, could you be a single person in a tribal society? You are not part of a tribe unless you are married into that tribe. And if you are not married into that tribe or part of a family in that tribe, you're dead. Okay, the tribe next door would capture you, whatever. Tribal society. So that since there were a lot of wars, what ended up happening was, is that a lot of women were left without spouses without fathers, without brothers, and they needed to be pulled into a tribe to be protected. So God did, as we believe, a permissible thing. Okay, B, 
because women are stuck in this situation and we don't want them left alone and we need to pull them into these, dry, into these tribes, it is now permissible for you to take four if, if they are 100% treated equally. This is not a thing where you've got a palace and you've got 600 women laying in a room dressed all pretty. No. Okay. So equality. If you're going to buy love one and buy her a car and buy her a house and give her a 100 camels, okay, you've got to do the same with the other. And if you can't handle it, don't do it at all. So in this situation, and nowadays, you don't. how many guys do you know here are married in more than one wife? It is not a common practice. It's, it's again, done... It, Back then, 1,400 years ago, because they were in a situation where they needed God to tell them, hey, you can do this in order to protect some of your people and to keep them in the circle. So that's pretty much the history behind it. Now, it's it's a little different, and if a woman wants to make sure she's not going to marry a man who's going to go, oh, great, I can have more than one wife and treat one like this and one like that and be ignorant, yeah, exactly as was stated, she can put it in her marriage contract and say, no, you can't do that. But he should know by himself if he can't handle... um, one, then why would he try and handle two? Now, I promised you, you would get to ask your question. Well, it's not a question so much as a statement and maybe some of the questions that derive from it, but um, it's my opinion that all religions are cultural constructs, and uh, as one religion comes in contact with some other ideology, it changes, merges. Um, like when I, was, when I was telling you about that thing called Catholics, if you remember hundreds of years ago, Many of the Catholics used to have, um, you know, the women, would, they would have to cover their hair and they'd have to be covered, um, you know. And then after they came into contact with a lot of these secular ideologies, which, you know, Protestants lay the claim to, but um, they started to sort of change their behavior in context of, you know, that secular culture. Um, and I was going to ask, but I just say something else first, um, yeah, do you think that that'll be the same thing for Islam? That maybe at one point in the future, it may, <coughs> however unsuccessfully or successfully, come into contact, you know, with the secular culture and eventually begin to sort of, um, sort of interpret certain texts in a certain way, so that they themselves become a part of that. Yeah, sure. Did everyone hear the question, or should we should repeat it? Yeah. Is that keeping the secular Mm-hmm. I'm going to let the panelists respond. Would you like to reiterate her question for the 
I just don't want the audience to be bored of the same people talking. So do you want to read? Let me just reiterate it? really quick. Um, she said that religion is very much, and different religions are cultural constructs, and as they merge with different ideologies, as society changes over the centuries, they tend to change um, or adapt. For example, Catholicism and Judeo-Christian ideology in general changed as the society became more secular, especially after the um, Protestant Reformation and things like that. It it changed. Their practices changed. Their habits changed. Their interpretations of the text changed. Of course, you know, the texts themselves change. And is that happening to Islam um, and how is that manifested? Okay. Um, I think it would be really interesting to hear both of us give an answer to this, how our, our <laughs> different views are. Um, so um, I, I'm going to try to make this brief because we want to open the floor up to as many questions as possible. We still have time. But basically, um, I'll start out by saying I agree that a lot of religions are cultural and do mix and do mingle and do produce something in the end and change over time. But I disagree on why and how it happened. Okay, and I'm going to try to the best of my ability and and not just represent my own view, but what a lot of Muslims um, believe is this whole interesting phenomenon of the of the the progression of a religion. Okay, so why it's so interesting that Moses had the message that there's one God, right? And then he had a book and that Jesus had a message that there's one God and he had a book and that Muslims came along and had the same thing. And there was a professor I remember um, in college where we asked, why do you think they're so similar? And she said, oh, I have a simple answer to that. She said, Muhammad went and he found the um, Torah and he found the, the Bible. He put them together and there's your Quran. Okay. Um, I told her, but he was illiterate. And then it kind of ended there. Um, but, um, yeah, he, he was illiterate. I'm not sure if any of you, of all of you know that. But he was illiterate. He, um, he couldn't read or write. Um, but basically, what Muslims believe in general is that, with all the other religions, is that they're all, they were all the same religion. Okay. We believe that, um, we believe in one God, as, as you all know that. And we believe that God had a message to humanity, that there is one God. And over time, from Adam all the way down to Muhammad, he kept sending that message. There is one God. It's not the sun that you worship. It's not the moon. It's not fire. It's not stones. And it's not the wind or any other idols that human beings worshipped in their various tribes. We also believe, which makes sense that they'd all mesh somehow, right? We also believe that every culture, and it's not just an Arab Middle Eastern thing, every culture in the world got a message, right? And so we believe that that, G- that Jesus was a prophet, that he had a true message. We believe Moses was a prophet, that Noah was a prophet, that, that Solomon was a prophet, all the way up. So basically all your prophets in the Bible, we believe in them too. But what we believe happened was exactly what you were saying. We believe that time came and people started throwing in their own opinions. And a lot of these books and messages that came down to people because God wanted to send this one message that he existed started changing because initially when the message came down, I don't care which tribe you want to pick, whether it's Noah's people or Joseph's people or Abraham's people, that a message came down in the beginning in its purest form, and then human beings started giving their own interpretations, spinning in their culture for power-hungry reasons, started saying, you can do this, you can't do this. You know. And when we look in the history of a lot of these religions, a lot of the people in power were the religious people. And what would happen is, is they'd put in their own spins on things, and it would change over time. And so, But the thing is, is that, so we asked, well, is that going to happen? in Islam but what we were we believe we were told in 1400 years ago that God said this keeps happening so why does he keep sending messengers 
Well, when it happened in one religion and then the people um, changed the religion, he had to send another one to fix it again and then he had to send another one. So the Prophet said that the messengers are like bricks to a building. They're all related to each other and they all stand stand together for one message. So we don't believe that we're the only message or we're the only religion. We believe they all have truth to them. And they all came with the same message that we all share, which is why they're all similar. But what we believe happened is that God is going to protect this message. And he's not going to let it change. And he's not going to keep sending messengers. And so with this message, you see that from 1,400 years ago till now, which has never happened in a single book, try to find one and you won't, the Quran has not changed, not by a letter, not by an accent, not by a word. The words rhyme. They make sense scientifically, right? They, are, they give stories. I always tell my friends, it's like a math book, a science book, a physics book, a, and, a, and poetry and literature all together in one book. And it hasn't changed from 1,400 years ago till now. So your question to me is whether I think it was ch- will change. Well, it hasn't so far for 1,400 years. The ones that are fabricated, we know they're fabricated, but they've been fabricated f- like maybe a a thousand years ago. So what Turkey's telling you is not new. They read their history books. But Turkey wasn't going for Islam. Turkey was going for what they labeled as modernization. And that a woman who's wearing a miniskirt is more modern and more upbeat than a woman who's wearing the hijab. So, and that whole image of what a Western woman they wanted to incorporate into Turkey is what really you're talking about. I mean, if you really eradicate Islam, if you look at Bosnia, if you look at what Russia, and when Russia was in control, a lot of the Muslims in that era didn't understand Islam, didn't grow up with Islam. So, I, I mean, Huda, I couldn't have said it better myself, but what will come to Islam is a lot of the challenges. A lot of the challenges that you'll have, such as Turkey, such as things that are being reinterpreted from different viewpoints that want to say, well, Islam was wrong. Islam is timeless for us. And I truly agree. Islam is timeless for us. It is what it is, and it will be protected. And we have the faith and the belief that it will be protected by Allah. So it will not change for those who abide by the book, abide by the hadith, abide by the sunnah. We will continue to practice it as our children will practice it. Is there going to be differences here and there? Absolutely. I mean, the recent thing that happened is in one woman who wanted to lead the prayers. And you know, a couple of years ago, and, she, and we know that in Islam a woman cannot lead prayers, not because women are less, but for certain things. And in the Catholic Church, there is no way a woman is going to be a priest. So it's not, it's like you, what women, what the challenge, I think the biggest thing is going to come to Islam is the challenges and the redirecting. And as more and more of our young people are growing up and understanding Islam, reinterpreting what was misinterpreted. And that's what you're going to see a difference in. I'm going to end that there. Only, I don't want to cut this off, but I want to give everyone a chance to ask a question, although you're making excellent comments and questions, and I really appreciate I just it. Okay. Wanna, oh, um, go ahead. I'm sorry. I do, do want to take a question. This will be really quick. <laughs> to, if you want to continue this, the question that was just answered, the challenge that was just given, um, if you go to, ch- go to China and go to Russia and go to Mexico and go to Texas and go to Canada and go to Africa and go to Australia, okay, and pick up a Qur'an in every single country, in every single one of those places, and watch how they pray, and listen to how they pronounce their prayers. In every one of those countries, the book is written in the same way, Mm -hmm. with exact accents. Mm -hmm. 
everything. And they, they pray in the exact same way around the world. People who don't know each other, who are nothing like each other, who speak different languages, stand up and they pray in the exact same unified manner. And if you, if you want to go with Turkey's theory, okay, then, then I should be wrong. But if Turkey's wrong, then you'll see that equivalent in every country. Okay, in the back, you had a question. Nice and loud for us. That is a it's a huge question. It's a no, huge, it is talked it is, about. It, it is. is. Um, in vitro fertilization is accepted in Islam, I would say, because you're taking from the male, from the husband and the wife, and so the baby will be theirs. Whereas if you're if you're taking an egg from a donor, that child is not technically theirs, and so you have to understand that in Islam. Like the biggest question they also come is why Islam doesn't allow adoption. And because for the maintenance of someone's identity is that you can't adopt, but we can take care of an orphan. We can, we can house them. We can clothe them. We can feed them. But they must maintain their identity and that of their fathers. Um, if I was to compare it or draw a parallel, in the, when open ad- or closed adoptions were happening, how many children grew up wanting to know their parents, wanting to know who fathered them, wanting to know their genetics, how, what's going on? And so Islam tries to protect and sometimes this is the hardest decision. It's not saying, here's, here's a way out, but I'm going to forbid you from taking it, or I might, this marriage might break because I'm not going to let you use a donor's egg. It really is for the future long term, the consequences of that decision. Sometimes you don't know what you're getting. Uh, what are the genetics? What if they have cancer? What if, so a lot of this is the protection. For us, we don't know. We accept. But in vitro is very much practiced in Islam, and it is it is accepted, and, and a lot of the women, even Arab Muslim women, are doing it. So if that's something of an option for them, please go for it. She, she is, um, she is the one who's in the world, which is the 
Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I have a question. So wait, so basically you, you'd be willing to donate... I just want to get the science done. Okay. Yeah, well, it's hard. Mm. Mm, of course. I think, honestly, we can give you a surface answer, but I wouldn't be able to give you a, a, what we would say is a, a, you know, a yeah. fatwa or something, but for them to seek the guidance of an imam, of a scholar, and to see what he would say. Yeah, I mean, because the main reason, I mean, the main reason is the rights of orphans mm-hmm. and the rights of children who, who, who don't know their biological parents is so important in the religion that with, with adoption, I mean, I won't go so far as to say I agree that we, we can't adopt, we can definitely adopt children, but it's so important to recognize who the child's parents are. Like, if, for example, my husband and I adopted a child and took that child in and cared for that child and, and raised it, we would, you can't I would, yeah, I wouldn't give right. them my last name, but it's I would always tell the child where she came from, mm-hmm. but you can definitely house them and feed them and take care of them mm-hmm. and everything else. So if, if for example, you know, you know, your, um, your brother, um, and didn't have, um, couldn't father a child with his with his wife, and they were able to enter science and fix it so that they could have a child together. That's one hundred percent permissible. But once it's not hers biologically, then it's just like telling that baby when that baby's born, this woman raised you, but she's not your mother, like biologically. So it's there's some re- it's really touchy. It's a really touchy area. But I would, I mean, whatever ways there are. I mean, I don't know if you were saying she can do in vitro or she can't do in vitro, but... She can. She, she just can't take she, her egg. Yeah. yeah. Right. She can. I see. Can't handle it, right. I would tell if he was my brother <laughs> I would I, I mean my brother right now is looking to get married and if he had to go through this I would tell him ask 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 and do everything you can because our religion I mean you're saying he converted to Islam and no matter what anybody tells him it's supposed to be an easy religion and you know that's why God gave us brains because we figure out things and ways out of our troubles and ways out of our problems so if they naturally can't conceive a baby I would tell him to ask you know, doctors, and I would tell them to ask, you know, uh, sheikhs, like she was saying, and find out a way that they can do it and try everything. Because if there's a way that they can do it, it's not like it's... The door um, is closed. Yeah, the door is closed. Absolutely yeah. not. Okay, luck. another question or comment? Come on, guys. We're not that scary. That's what we're trying to establish here. Mm-hmm. Yes? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. but in fact are not part. Mm-hmm. Read closely mm-hmm. what is mm-hmm. said. Not really part of the religion at all. Oh, you don't have to read closely at all. It's very clear that. I'm sorry. The, the question was is that we definitely see in the media all kinds of really scary things that happen to women, not necessarily here where we are, but in the Middle East, things like honor killings. Read those in the papers all the time. You read a lot of scary stories where people, a woman is murdered because she had a relationship. I'm so glad you brought that up because I have, I have a, an, a story to tell. But um, And uh, I think we should both answer this no, because the, the, two the, views are, the two views are so important. Um, and why is that? Um, if, is it, if it's not the religion, is it their ethnic customs? Is it part of the tribal thing? You know, what is it that makes it okay for them to do that over there? Um, I've been to. I'm, my parents are from Syria. I was born and raised here, and, and I've and I've been to the Middle East um, in Syria many, many times. And I'll have to say that I I never saw that there. But I think a lot of those stories that do happen make the media there as much mm-hmm. as it makes it here. And it's 100% um, a misunderstanding of their religion. And a lot of times what oppressors do, whether they're here or in Europe or in Africa or in the Middle East or in Asia, what oppressors do is they justify their, their evil actions by saying, giving whatever justification they can, whether it's their religion or the custom or the right or the person's guilty or whatever the case may be. And they're using it, it just happens in these countries, that um, the people, not necessarily the government or the police, but the people doing those, for example, honor killings, are, think that that's part of their religion. But I think much more so it's part of their, their culture. As was stated earlier, when Islam came and ended infanticide, you are not allowed to kill your daughter, period for anything. Even if she's guilty of an atrocious thing, you can't kill your daughter. Um, and no father has a right or no brother has a right to kill to kill his, his daughter. Just the thought of it is, is atrocious here and it's atrocious there. I have my, my first cousins in Syria volunteer in an organization that's entirely made up of people our age right here, right? And this is in Syria, not here. And my cousin's 25 and she's not married and she's in college over there. And she vol- she works every day after after school in, in a volunteer organization that's in a broken down building that has no heat or air conditioning. It was so cold when I went and visited in the winter. And I watched them and went with them to go on the outskirts of the city and go into villages where they where the houses were like mud houses and the streets weren't paved and the children were barefoot in the winter. And basically they would go and they would collect people and say, come on, we're going to teach you how to read. And we're going to teach you what your rights are. And we're going to teach you that your husband can't tell you you have to stay home all day and lock you in the room. And what we, I learned when I went there is they're all illiterate. They can't read. So it's not even a close reading of the text. They can't read it at all. They don't know what the Quran says. And so you've got a lot of groups of people. And when you'll, when you'll see those honor killings and things, first question I have is what kind of village do they live in? Are they in the metropolis of these cities where everybody's educated and having a college degree? Or are we talking about the outskirts where people don't know what their religion is, can't even recite anything from the book, don't know what the prophet's teachings were, and we know more in this country about it than they do. You know more about their religion than they do. And so... It's it's basically that. It's There's no education. There are some really scary customs that are coming up, and people are acting on animal instinct rather than, you know, educated um, 
civilized individuals. It's scary. And I think female genital mutilation is something that was pre-Islamic. It wasn't something that was done in the, in the northern part of Africa. On in in there, um, it was done pre-Islamic, and it was a rite of passage for some of the girls. Um, I've been to conferences where the doctor from those countries said it could be a very part of her being. It could be something that she really wanted to have, and if it was done correctly, if it was done appropriately, it would have been a rite of passage for her to have gone from a girlhood to womanhood. But the fact of the matter, some of them are practicing it in a very unconventional way, forcing the girl to have female, uh, to have, uh, female genital mutilation. And so that brings itself to a problem. We've had a lot of the doctors, I did a presentation, and they said a lot of the Sudanese women come back and say, re-stitch me up after I deliver the baby, because that is part of who I am. So, But it's not something that is Islamic at all. It's not something that Islam practices. And just to parallel, the as image of, of Muslim women is negative here, image of American women in, or Western women in the Middle East is really, you've got the Jerry Springer show, you've got the Jenny Jones show, you've got the shows that are portraying Western women as with all due respect, you know, in a very inappropriate uh, ways of doing. So is that is that really all of these Arab, uh, Western women, are they really that what Jerry Springer portrays and what is being aired in, the, in, the, in other parts of the country? So the same, and, and what I love about these presentations is for us to have a dialogue and for us to remember as we see others, how is others seeing us? And so it really draws a parallel, and it says for students, to really draw a parallel of the both worlds that you are colliding and as I was asking you have a very diverse student body at Moraine Valley one of the most diverse uh, I've seen so really talk to your friends get to know one another get to understand what it is and that and, and I thank you for your question it really is an important one honor killing for Islam you have to have four witnesses to catch you in the act how many four people walking do you have at night to catch someone in the act with that another person? That is an interesting history. Which you know? Yeah, the, the, mm -hmm. the four people thing. I actually just read this this morning. So basically the, the, the where, why, where that verse came revealed is basically the prophet's wife, Aisha, mm -hmm. had dropped a necklace. Yes. Okay? Mm -hmm. She dropped a necklace and she went back to look for it. And when she went back to look for it, a man came across her and decided to help her. And in that process, when people saw them together there came the suspicions and the what accusations. Mm -hmm. And think of that right now today happening in Iran or in Afghanistan or, you know, wherever, you know, religion is portrayed as, as being um, practiced in a very extreme and wrong way. Um, what would happen to the woman? Okay. We've heard scary stories in Iran or in Iraq where there was an honor killing because so-and-so was dating so-and-so and it scares us, right? So did that happen? Was she, was there an honor killing? Was she chastised? Was she divorced? A verse was revealed by God that said, and I have I had this written down that basically four witnesses. This is in protection of a woman because human beings and men, were being really. yeah, and the honor of men yeah. yeah. In response to an accusation of a woman and and the man in the relationship that they were in some kind of suspicious having some suspicious affair, that there needs to be four witnesses of the act. Not just being in bed. Not seeing them together. And not not a photograph. Yeah. Four people have to see the actual act before there's any validity of the accusations. Otherwise, that person who does the accusation is the punished one. So it's so interesting to see that when people go, oh, four witnesses or this happens, where did that come from? That came from because a woman and a man were accused of this and God said, no, you do not. 
You do not accuse them and just reach an con- automatic conclusion. And it's, it was actually to give a protection. So today the people that do do that are absolutely not following the religion I look at, at all. It, I look at it as they're hijacking. No, there's no such thing as an honor, there killing. Is no honor killing. There's no such thing as an honor killing. A man can never kill his daughter. It's, it's an honor killing. She's not killed. I, I mean, I'm not sure how the, the judicial system works, but, but basically, um, and, and, and when I say four people, I don't mean four people walk into a room and see two people lying in bed together. There, and, and how often, you pretty much, I mean, did, I mean, forgive my speech, but you pretty much have to have some kind of pornographic, you know, witnessing for, in order to have four witnesses, and I say witnessing the act. I don't mean seeing them standing together. I mean, witnessing an act. How often does that happen? It was the, the exception was to make it difficult. She would not be murdered. To answer your concern, she would not be murdered. And to, to associate that with, with, with our religion goes absolutely against everything in the teaching. And for anybody that uh, does associate it with the religion, either over there hasn't read the Quran or over here hasn't read it either. Islam values the life. And if you kill a soul, it's like you've killed millions. And so for all us, of humanity, yeah. If you kill one person, I mean, it's like you've killed Islam all. Islam is really being hijacked to accept and val- validate these astro- you know, atrocities that is happening. And it really, if you really look at it, if God values your life, why would He give someone else the power to take it away? I think one of the things is capital punishment is something that I don't think we would stand for because of the fact that no matter what. You don't, we don't have as human beings because there could be an error look at how many have gotten out of jail after DNA was discovered and after a lot of the things that were put there so imagine if as a Muslim I said okay there's four witnesses there's the people there's this and okay go ahead kill them I'm going to be responsible and I, and I don't think that I would be able to do that is it done? sure I would not deny that it's being done but it's being hijacked and, u- and de- justified by using Islam <coughs> and I think this is where we need to go back and talk and say I don't want to be cornered to say yeah you're going to be whipped this or you're going to do this or you're going to be killed I, I agree there is no way to justify the murder of another person if I could offer what might be a good analogy for the hijacking of a religion by a minority group in order to oppress and abusing the religion in order to inflict their will on others, in this country, a group called the Ku Klux Klan uh-huh. committed atrocious acts, murders, killings. Under the name of religion. In mm-hmm. the name of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think I know. Fight. In the name of Christianity. Name and of I don't think I know any Christians who would say, yeah, that's pretty much us. You know, it's, it's obviously a distortion. And um, unfortunately, when these groups gain power, you hear these terrible stories. Yeah, so. uh, other questions or comments from the audience? It is 135. Um, just to let you know, but um, that's not to discourage you from asking. No, 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 not to discourage you. I would say we have another 10 or 15 minutes or so at least. Come on. Come on. Any of the Muslims sitting here want to say something? As a teacher, I know you have to to do the pause. Any questions? No, I learned learned you're supposed to pause and take a sip of water so that you can get
Okay. Um, really, um, if you, as you, as all of you know, some of your Muslim friends here. Basically, wh- what makes a Muslim a Muslim is that they bear witness, right? You guys know it's called the Shahada. They bear witness that there's one God, there's one God, um, and that the Prophet Muhammad was his last and final messenger, which comes with it that all the messengers before him they believe in them too. So since there's that two parts of the declaration of faith to be a Muslim, basically we don't just believe in the Qur'an alone as our source of guidance, but we also believe in the Hadith, which is basically the sayings of the Prophet, the way he lived his life, the way he treated people, etc. And so it's really interesting with the Hadith, which Muslims also follow, like when we, when you guys know when we pray, does it say in the Qur'an how to pray? When you stand up and you put your hands here on your heart, and then you prostrate before God. Does it say in the Quran how you pray? No, it doesn't, right? It, it's not... Well, in, in the Prophet basically taught how to pray. It says in the Quran repeatedly that there's five daily prayers and that you should pray. But um, basically... We had to pray 50 times and Muhammad... Had it, had it brought down to, to five. Yes, at first God, God told Muhammad, yeah, pray, Muslims should pray 50 times a day. And then he came to the people and said, okay, God wants us to pray 50 times. And then he said, okay, that's way too much. And he just kept going back until it was brought down to five daily prayers. So every time you pray once, it's like praying ten times. That's how much credit you get. But basically how it goes is that we know how to pray because we basically go by the hadith. That the hadith sayings are how it teaches you how to do it. So the hadith, who gave us those? This is the point that Mr. Swanson was trying to make. Basically, Muslims all around the world, the ones that practice the faith, men and women, so every Muslim man in the world who follows and practices this faith is practicing it based on the narrations of a woman. Aisha, the wife of the Prophet, has related hadith after hadith after hadith of how to live your life, how to treat people, um, etc. And so it's interesting to say the role of women in Islam and how much empowerment we have and how much authority we have. Every Muslim man follows what a woman says is how we should practice our religion. So that was also an interesting note on women. Other questions or comments? No. Um, basically, what we believe in Islam is that every child is born innocent and pure, and that there's no notion of original sin. Um, Eve in the Bible, I'm, I'm sorry, in the Quran, Eve is not con, uh, is not the temptress. She did not tempt Adam to eat the apple. They both were sinned. They both repented, and they were both forgiven. And so, there's no notion of original sin and there is no notion that a child is born with any baggage so in Islam when a baby is born that baby is actually a human being in its purest form and it is the most innocent creation of a human being and it is with age and with learning and with, na- and with nature around it that it learns everything that either corrupts it or makes it good or whatever But so there is no baptism Child- children are born innocent okay, other questions Yes, in the back. Uh, 
domestic violence. Well, she is asked: Is is domestic violence? Do you find it in the Muslim community? And I would say you would find it in the Muslim community as you would find it in the Christian community, as you would find it in the Jewish community. So as I w we have a whole department on domestic violence. But does Islam condone domestic violence? And that is absolutely not. The domestic violence is in any other culture. It's about power and control. And so a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of men use Islamic verses to justify their abuse or to justify their power. But that is something we're trying to eradicate and to stand up and empower our young women and uh, any woman to know that this is not part of her faith, that Allah or God does not want her to be hurt or humiliated. And so we have it, but it's not from an Islamic perspective. And you asked about diseases, um, cancer. It knows no boundaries, and in, in, in we find it. We have a whole breast cancer department. Also, we're working with our Arab women to understand breast cancer and to seek um, assistance. We have newly now applied for a grant to talk about health promotion and understanding um, diabetes, understanding blood pressure. So those are things that we're working on, and that's, and that's just we're using Islam to help. But you have to understand, not all Arabs are Muslims. Actually, there's 3 million Arab Americans in the United States, and 63% of them are of Christian descent. There are about 8 million Muslims, and uh, the majority of them are of Asian descent. Then you've got the African American, and the, or African Americans, and then you have the Arab population. In Illinois, there's 650,000 Muslims, and there's 450,000 Arab Americans. So we are growing in the, in the United States and, and again I really thank all of you for allowing us to come in and to, and to make a, an understanding of Islam and to eradicate some misunderstanding and misguidance there's a question in the back yes in what process were all the verses um, okay, well, in Islam, we believe that um, that the revelations of the Quran were, did not all come at once. So it wasn't like the whole book was revealed in one day. It was in basically chunks. Sometimes it was one verse by itself. Sometimes in one occasion it was a whole chapter. But basically, we believe that um, God conveyed the verses to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, through the angel Gabriel. And, and then they were recorded written down by literate people during his lifetime. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like time passed after his death, etc., and then eventually at one point it was all written down. It was all written down and put in order as it looks today mm -hmm. um, during his lifetime while he was still alive. So some things else we want to make sure that mainstream understands. We do believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Yes. We do believe in Mary. And we have a whole chapter on, on Mary. So there's a lot of misconceptions when we do cultural trainings is that they don't believe that we believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, and we do. And Jesus, radiallahu is, is a prophet. So for us, that's how we respect and revere him as well. Uh, historically, what, what about countries like uh, Afghanistan is a real good example of how how uh, your system of belief has been perverted. How, how do you, what, what do you think about that? Um, I think it makes me very sad, first and foremost, 
how a lot of people that share my religion um, don't understand it and they pervert it and how um, a lot of people are suffering around the world because of misconceptions of the religion and that it's taken culture. I mean, if you think about the one, the consistency, I mean, Afghanistan is not the only place. Iraq was definitely another one where um, the abuses that leaders and police and people in power use against their people using the religion, those op- that oppression is different in Afghanistan. It's bad everywhere, right? But the oppression they used in Afghanistan was different than the oppression they used in, in Iraq, was different than the oppression they used in Bosnia, was different than the oppression used here, was different than the oppression used in Africa. But there's oppression, and it's all under the same banner. But it doesn't make sense that it's all inconsistent. Why isn't the oppression of people under the banner of Islam in all these different countries the same? Because it's not really part of the religion. It's, it's because really, we're talking about, not to interrupt you, the hijacking mm-hmm. of Islam. Yeah. And to really justify the... Po- and it really mm-hmm. is, as domestic mm-hmm. violence is about power and control, you've got countries where the people are illiterate and, and don't know what's going on sometimes around them, and then someone gets into power that abuses that, mm-hmm. those values and those beliefs. And so it's really about uh, power and control. Yeah. Yeah, but the thing that is consistent in all those places is the good things, right? The things that are actually done the same. That's where the sign says, okay, it kind of shows, well, this is the part of the religion because a Muslim in America is doing this thing that's the same as a Muslim in China. But then the bad things where they oppress them and they abuse them and they kill them and they do all these things, they do it for a different reason or in a different way in all the countries because it's man-made. It's invented, right? So it's something to think about. Um, It's very tempting when you see, it's like racism through and through. When you see, for example, anybody who's ever been racist against, for example, an African-American person, when somebody does something wrong and you judge them because that must be because of their skin color, and then you look at somebody else with the same skin color, are you going to say they're the same way? Okay? So it's basically a stereotype, just as... You know, the era of Jim Crow here in this country basically oppressed a group of people. Do we say it's because of the religion that was practiced in this country? What did it? Wasn't it just the people and the way they think about another group of people? So we've got to be very careful when we look at a human being who does wrong. Don't judge Islam based on what Muslims do. This is, I guess, the point I'm trying to make. Because everybody makes mistakes and does wrong things. And we can't judge an entire group of people on what they believe based on the violence and the actions of a small group. Okay, we're time. I would like to thank both the panelists very much. And thank you, Troy, for putting this uh, panel together. And did we have one more question? Can we say that? Okay, okay, one more. <laughs> Yeah. We no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. 
And those are the cultural no, things that is being done versus what Islam. Again, we go back and say Islam is being hijacked, but Islam is also saying that if a woman gets pregnant without having a husband, that she's going to be killed. But you just killed a life. And you have who are you to judge? You have no right to judge another human being. It's a being. sin. Basically, it's a, it's a sin, sin to kill. Yeah. But a lot of it is the cultural values or the or the tribal things that come along that I have to protect my honor. And unfortunately, this is where we're fighting against is that what you're doing is really un-Islamic, which mm-hmm. is even supersedes your tribal beliefs that you have to regain your honor in order to mm-hmm. kill someone. You really have to educate them and really empower them to look at what are you doing against Allah when you do kill your daughter. You're not regaining your honor. You're going to hell for killing two innocent lives, regardless of what she's done. Those, those are very much part of the and culture. It's, and you know, it's funny, even when we say culture, I'm scared to say that, because I'm from Syria, and I'm sure some people in Syria did bad things, but I don't want me being Syrian to be associated with the Syrian, their being Syrian. It's basically, to put it simply, it's like you were saying about, it's about power. Let's pretend a person, whether they're a religious person, you know, leader or captain of a ship. How about that? Let's take religion out of this. They're captain of a ship and they want to stay in power. So they say, God told me that if you do this, I can kill you. Mm-hmm. In your own right? little world. And if you can't read the book and you can't read the message and nobody there is explaining it to you or teaching to you what the truth is, you might just say, okay. And you might fall victim to that. So that's pretty much what's happening. People are lying. So they can stay in power and they can abuse people. Because if that is a religion, then what about the man who fathered that child? Does he get killed along with them? So, you know what I mean? So it takes two to tangle. So you can't just say the whole burden. And I think that's what every religion that wants to dominate and control has put a whole burden on women. Within Christianity, she made Adam fall from heaven. It's her fault. This is her issue. So the whole issue is how do you educate and how do you empower and not allow the captain to say, I, this is my way or the highway and I'm going to throw you off the board. This is where a lot of our young women have to know she committed a sin. That is between her and Allah when she faces him and during judgment day. But if I was to kill her for what she did, then she is, she is going to be in heaven and I'm going to have to then answer for killing her and an, an unborn baby. So it really, it really is working with these fine lines. Islam and culture come t- sometimes is such a fine line you don't know, is it really Islam, is it really culture? And if you do come across that issue, I will be more than happy to give you our card and call us, and we'll be more than happy to work with you and the, and the young people that you come across. This is part of the culture identity that our kids are going through. Am I here or am I not here? So. I just want to take a quick second to thank all of our panel members. This is great. This is one of the things our library wants to do is uh, bring people that are leaders in our community to talk about important issues. And I think in uh, our post-9-11 world, um, this is the kind of discussions we need to be having and getting out there. So I, I appreciate all of your time. Um, one quick reminder, April 15th, we have another panel discussion. It's entitled Race in America. Why are we not talking about America's number one issue? Which back when we entitled that discussion, um, Barack Obama hadn't given the big speech on race, so maybe we need to rename it. But I hope that uh, you put that on your calendars. I think it's going to be an excellent event. Thank you all for coming during this busy time of the semester, and have a great day. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.